reading for this afternoon is taken from Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. And at this point I have to uh, make a small confession. When I looked, I thought I had the correct sermon on Nehemiah chapter 2. But I brought the next one in the series. So I will read, I'll read the whole chapter of Nehemiah. And uh, maybe briefly touch down on some pertinent facts in the beginning of the chapter here. But then our focus will be the second half of Nehemiah, chapter 2, with the text being verse 20. Nehemiah, chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, this is happening four months after the previous chapter. First, uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, we read that it was in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, when he was in Susa, that he heard the news, began to mourn, began to cry out to God. And now, four months later, he still heard nothing. I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And he was afraid for good reason, because these Persian kings, they were notorious for their cruelty. His father, Xerxes, was known for, when he was marching his army across the empire to try to conquer Greece, he had an entire engineering corps executed just because a storm broke up their bridge. And so being sad in his presence could have very real consequences. So he says he was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, for the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I had asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. 
and went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim to Jerusalem. So far. Let us now respond by singing Psalm 109. So the text for this afternoon is from Nehemiah chapter 2, and we'll be looking at the verse, the final verse in the chapter, verse 20. Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever played the trust game? The trust game, that's when you put somebody up, it's usually a trust building exercise when you get a large group of people together and you need to have that uh, exercise as an ice-breaking kind of thing to get people talking with each other and uh, trusting each other as they move into a project or as they get together as a class. One person will close their eyes, and someone will say, I'll catch you. Then they lean backwards, maybe six inches, and someone catches them. Next time, they lean back, maybe a foot, before they're caught. Next, people might put them up on a chair, and then they'll draw back even further before they're caught. A few years back, back when I was young and foolish, maybe a little younger than I am today at any rate, I had it that I was with a group of friends and we did it off the railing of a deck and you get six people underneath to catch the person who is doing the falling. Now, you may be willing to fall six inches. You may be willing to fall a foot. You may be willing to fall backwards off a chair, or even off of the railing of a deck. But what if someone put you at the top of a skyscraper and told you 
fall back. I'll catch you. Your very life is on the line. No parachute on your back, no nets to catch you below, just their promise. I'll catch you. Do you trust me? In this passage today, Nehemiah finds himself in a somewhat similar situation. Everything is on the line. Everything is on the line, and he's heard God's promise. And he's brought to the point where he needs to make the fall. And so I bring you the word of God under the following theme and points. Trust the God of heaven. And we'll see, first of all, how the people start in misery. Secondly, we'll see a bold proposition. And finally, we'll see how they are building in faith. Now, before we launch into our passage, let's take a quick moment to recap where we are in Nehemiah. In the first chapter, as we saw this morning, he's been faithfully serving King Artaxerxes as a cupbearer. And we can see that he was someone that the king relied on. If we look into chapter 2, the king asks him as he's about to go out on this journey, uh, how long will he be gone? He wants to know when he can have his cupbearer back, when he can have this trusted servant back. The city is in disgrace. He's heard the report that the walls have been knocked down, that the gates have been burned. He has been sitting mourning for four months prior to leaving. And he called God to remember, to remember that he was their God, to remember that they were his people, and to remember the promise that if they repented, he would turn to them. And to show this remembrance by opening an opportunity for him to hear from the king. And after four months of mourning, the opportunity comes. Nehemiah gets his answer from God. Everything he needs falls into place. All that's required is for him to leave everything that he knows. All of the comforts, all of the wealth and opulence of the Persian Empire. He was the cupbearer to the king. This was a prominent position. Only someone who was dear and trusted, close to the king, would be allowed to be in this position because the king would want someone who he knew had his absolute loyalty testing the wine, making sure that he himself wouldn't get poisoned along the way. So he lived in luxury. He lived in wealth. And everything that he needed now All that he needed to do now was to leave that behind. He's left with the question, do I trust God? Will I go? And in going, will I commit to obedience? It's a frightening thing. He has no idea what he's getting himself into. He knows it won't be a walk in the park. We can see earlier here in Nehemiah too, the ground was being laid for fierce opposition. Sanballat, a pagan, and Tobiah, Tobiah, a man whose name meant Yahweh is good. A man who was another Jew who rose to a position of prominence in another kingdom, who should have been supportive, who was standing against him. 
Someone who put the interest of his position as an Ammonite official and his kingdom over that of the kingdom of God. Nehemiah saw that. He knew that he was facing potential opposition. And yet, despite all of that, Nehemiah decides to go ahead with it. God has opened this doorway, and he's going to walk through. He's going to commit to the kingdom of God. Now, this is not because he sees himself as being particularly faithful. In fact, in chapter 1, as we saw this morning, he confesses his faithlessness. He is committing because he trusts the faithfulness of God to carry him through. Now, the first part of Nehemiah's stay would have been quite a pleasant one. We come to the further passage, uh, one of the further verses in our passage. Uh, verse 11, we read, So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. These three days would have been very comfortable. As a royal official, a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes himself, no less, Nehemiah would have received a royal welcome. Entering with a grand retinue supplied by the king of kings, Artaxerxes I, with letters commissioned by the king to allow him safe passage, and a rank and station above that of everyone around him, he would have been, he would have been welcomed with true Middle Eastern hospitality, arms thrown open to him. People would be coming to greet him, trying to curry favor with King Artaxerxes through him, and he would be respected and honored. He's in a dangerous place now. He can settle down, enjoy the comforts, enjoy the flattery that he receives. He doesn't have to do more than a token effort. He's far away from the king. The king might never find out. Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah leaves us in suspense. Will he carries out what he means to do? He's told no one yet. What if after all of this, God's background work, even moving the heart of the king of Persia himself, Nehemiah decides to do a token amount of work and settle there in comfort. But then on the third day, night falls. And God moves in the heart of this cupbearer from Babylonia once again. Nehemiah is stirred up, stirred up to begin his task once more, to exercise his trust once more, and to take stock of the position that the city is found in. Was his brother Hanani right? Was his report about the state of the gates and the walls true? Likely using torches and moonlight to light the way, he and his men go out, and they begin to weave in and out of the rubble on the south side of Jerusalem, examining it every step of the way. The city's in rough shape. At one point, Nehemiah can't even continue through a particular gate on the back of his mount, and he's forced to detour. What has become of his beloved city? What happened to this place that his grandparents would have spoken of so fondly with its walls stretching up from the mountain as a crown decked with jewels on the head of a king? This is the city of God's favor. Mount Zion in the heights of the north, the city of the great king. And as he moves from one gate to another, everything is 
broken down. The city is in disgrace. God has indeed punished this city. But with repentance, would he bless them once more? He promised he would. Nehemiah looks back to that promise. As we saw this morning in chapter 1, God promised he would. Could Nehemiah trust him? What an easy thing it would have been for Nehemiah to back out at this point. How easy would it have been for him to throw up his hands and cry, Lord, you've thrown more into my lap than I can handle. I know you promised what you promised, but it's just too hard. I can't deal with this. No one knows yet what Nehemiah is working on, what he has planned. We see this emphasized for a second time in verse 16. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Again, we're left in suspense, having seen the great difficulty that is faced. The huge undertaking that this task would be, what will his response be? This is our second point. Now, returning from his night out, Nehemiah confronts the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials about the reality of the situation. We read in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. There are two things I want you to notice about this passage. First, to notice the language that Nehemiah uses. He says, you see the distress that we are in? Let us build that we may no longer be held in derision. He's not saying, look at the mess you got yourselves into. No, he's saying, we as God's people are in trouble. We're in this together. Look at the state that we're in. Second, he calls his people to action. He doesn't want them to be scorned by the people who only seek to take advantage of them, who seek to prey on the people of God anymore. He doesn't leave it there. But he gives them reason to hope. He gives them reason to have courage, a courage that comes from God. We see that in the verses that follow. I, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. With these words, Nehemiah takes the people with him. With these words, the people of Judah are encouraged to take the plunge. They are encouraged to close their eyes to their personal view of the future and to step forward in obedience to God. Their sin, their faithlessness doesn't bind them anymore. But on the basis of what the Lord has done, they are able to move forward in trust. On the basis of what the Lord has done, they are able to say the words, let us rise up and build. Many of you today have needed to rebuild. Maybe it's something in your lives that went wrong. Maybe you've given up on something because it seemed to be having no effect. 
Or maybe it was the fact that you've gotten trapped in the seduction of pornography. Or maybe it's drugs or alcohol that have sucked you in. Or maybe your marriage is struggling whether people know it or not. Maybe it's something else. And you feel as if your life is a reproach. As if your life is a disgrace. As if the devil is besieging you and mocking you. And you see the need to rebuild. But everything seems hopeless. How do you go forward from here? Brothers and sisters, what do you see as the driving force behind your hoped-for change of fortune? What do you see as the thing that will make life better for you? If only I was more self-controlled. If only my situation would change, the situation that I was in. If only this person would treat me better. If only X, whatever, then my life would be so much better. And change would be so much easier. Imagine for a moment that Nehemiah had approached it in this way. We're a reproach. If only our situation was better. If only the walls were in a bit better shape. If only the people involved in my situation were more repentant and easier to get along with. Yeah, because that was a reality for him too. That was an issue for him too. If we look to chapter 3, verse 1, we can see that the very first person that's mentioned is Elishab the high priest who rose up with his brothers. Elishab the high priest, we later learn, had his son married to one of the people that was opposing him, uh, had his son married to the daughter of one of the people that was opposing him, and he was in an alliance with another one of the people that was opposing Nehemiah. So Nehemiah could have said, look at these people. They're a mess. If only my situation was better. But he didn't. Why? There were a few reasons for this. One reason in particular. At the end of the day, Nehemiah knew that he was not the driving force behind what would come to pass. Every single advancement that had been made so far, every single opportunity that had, that had opened, even the ones that came at a high personal cost, a great sacrifice to himself, every single opportunity that he had been granted had come from the hands of the Lord. He was beginning to see in a very real way the words of the psalmist that we read in Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Too often in our lives, we try to go it alone when we have trouble. We think, I'll come back to God when I have my life sorted out. I'll pray to Him more often when I'm less ashamed to come before Him. But what you see here in our passage today is that you cannot wait until then. You can't wait until you have things figured out because you will not figure them out for yourselves. If you aren't constantly bringing it up before the Lord, 
If you aren't constantly coming before Him in prayer and coming to His Word, if you aren't seeking out the aid and company of people who will direct your eyes to Him in new ways, who will sharpen you as iron sharpens iron, then your situation will not improve. Brothers and sisters, we ought not to run from God even when we sin. Even when we sin, we ought not to run from God. If anything, this ought to spur us to seek God more fervently, more passionately, with more zeal than ever before. Recognizing, as we read in Philippians, that our only hope for obedience and success is that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Brothers and sisters, we may face overwhelming odds. We may face the sin that so easily entangles. But if we seek strength for obedience outside of ourselves, if we passionately cry out to God while we strive to do His will, He will hear us. Not on the basis of what we've done. Perhaps not in the timing that we would like either. But certainly not on the basis of what we've done. We've deserve nothing. But He will hear us on the basis of His own faithfulness. That rock which will never waver. Do we trust Him to carry us through? Will we call on Him when we feel desperate and down, begging Him for strength to go on? Will we take the plunge? Go on and trust, even if it means sacrifice, giving up something that might make life easy. And trust in Him. This leads us into our third point. Building in faith. Beloved congregation, God will hear us and supply the strength necessary to carry on for just one more, for one more day at a time. The, but the point of this passage is not that we'll always and immediately have victory. It's not that our situation will suddenly become so much easier because we've chosen to close our eyes to our present condition and to trust in God. But what our passage encourages us today to do is to trust in God despite our situation. Consider where we find Nehemiah at the end of this passage. What is the first thing that the people see when they begin their work? This good work. Is it success? Do people come flocking into Jerusalem from the nations around? Do we see the faithful coming to serve the Lord? No. Instead we read, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? first thing we see is opposition. The first thing is mockery and ridicule. And that not only from people outside like Sambalat and Geshem, but even from people who should be within the ranks of the people of God. We see Tobiah's name coming up again. From all around, Arabia to the south, 
Ammon nearby, and Sanblat in Samaria to the north. If these people joined together, they could pose an existential threat for the kingdom of Judah. For the people of God. They mock. They ridicule. They scorn the people of God for seeking to live in obedience to him. For striving to build up the kingdom once again. And they begin fabricating grounds to oppose it. Suggesting that the Jews are preparing to rebel. This could be a serious thing if it gets back to the ears of the king. You might find that this becomes a reality in your own life as well. When you commit yourself to renewed pursuit of the Lord. The first thing you may see is ridicule and opposition. If not from those around you, maybe even those closest to you. And if not from those closest to you, maybe even from within. The devil will whisper lies in your ears, telling you that life will be better if you just give up. The world will tell you that God's standards are way too high. That everyone else is doing what you're doing anyways. So it's not a big deal, right? And your own flesh will betray you, telling you that you just can't keep on going. You don't have the strength to carry on fighting. What do you do in these times? What do you look to? Psalm 56 says it more beautifully than I could. So we'll turn to that for a moment. I want to read verses 3 to 11 with you. Psalm 56 to verses 3 to 11. In the face of opposition, we read, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause, and their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps, as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? We like nice conclusions. We like to see God stepping in to save the day, the moment that we cry out. And sometimes he does do exactly that. Praise God when he does that. But sometimes he works in more subtle ways. Having a much broader perspective than we do. And sanctifying us through hardship. Getting us to draw closer to him through hardship. 
what we see in our passage today in Nehemiah isn't instant results. It's not an easy answer. But we do see a quiet trust expressed in God. Look at Nehemiah 2 verse 20. So I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He's saying God will answer us. If we trust in him and depend on him, he will give us the strength to serve him day by day. What right then do you have to talk back to the people of God? What right do you have to dictate to us? We are God's people and we answer to only one master. And you can respond in the very same way. When you face opposition in living in obedience to the Lord, what right do circumstances, people opposing us, or even our own flesh, our will, our desires, what right do they have to dictate to us? We'll struggle with them, certainly. They won't magically disappear, but we deny them the right or the authority to tell us to give up. To give up our desire to faithfully please the Lord. Because we trust in the one to whom we belong to prosper us in our work. Yes, we trust the one to whom we belong. Because we recognize that we aren't our own. We belong to someone else. As Christ himself said in John 17, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. We were bought by Christ. He paid for us with his precious blood. We continue to build in faith because we are not our own. We continue to go on because we rely on a greater power than our own. We have a vision that's beyond what we immediately see in front of us. We belong to Jesus Christ, and we trust that nothing will separate us from his love. Amen.